Black Sabbath. So um, today we'll be talking about victory, victory in Christ. Um, it's kind of like a variation on the last sermon I preached here. And if I were a more serious pastor, I'd say this is the beginning of a series, but um, <laughs> I'm just a regular guy, right? Um, when I was preparing the sermon, I had about 20 slides. It's, um, I don't know what the time is now, but I was hoping I'll be done in about 10, 15 minutes. But then I ran the sermon through with my wife, and she was like, hey, add some more slides. So now I've got 27 slides. <laughs> and, and I figure if I spend three minutes on each slide, <laughs> we'll be here for a little over two hours, right? But um, God help us. Um, God help us. So today... Um, I'll start with a summary of what I really want to talk about. Um, I think they are more or less, it can be summarized in four or five sentences. The first one is that there's still hope. Um, the second one is that the truth hasn't changed. The truth is still the truth. And God is still in charge. And when you combine all of this with the fact that God is love, it translates to the fact that you are overwhelming conquerors. Whatever you face in life, you can be an overwhelming conqueror. Um, I was asked to preach the sermon Monday morning, and I didn't respond until Monday evening because I was going to respond no, but I just wanted to ask my wife, you know. Um, she's a good, godly lady, and she said, yes, come on, you can do it. And um, so you can blame her for however long you spend in church today, but hopefully it will be God speaking. Um, so I'd like to... Um, Part of the reason I was asked was because we have an afternoon program that the youth is organizing. And so my sermon this morning would also be kind of geared towards the youth. Um, but we're not all youth, right? A few of us are older. Um, hopefully, we're all youth in, at heart. So I, I hope that this sermon would be applicable to each one of us. Um, we live in interesting times. We, we, right now, we have elections just around the corner, right? Um, it's, it's general, I think the general opinion is that the Democrats have it good. They potentially would win, right? The blue wave. Except that we heard that, we've been hearing that from the moment Trump won the Republican primaries, right? From the moment Trump won the Republican primaries, we thought the Republicans, the Democrats had it good. We thought Hillary was going to win. Things don't always appear the way they seem, right? Um, We've got the press saying one thing, and it looks like everywhere you turn, you hear one thing, and what tends to happen seems to be different. Um, and, and I think we all should start questioning our views. What are our views, and compare with what the world is saying? Because the fact that everybody's saying one thing doesn't necessarily mean that's the correct thing, right? All right, so today will be, what's really interesting about the Trump presidency or the current government is there's a saying that we get the government we deserve, not just the president, the government we deserve. And I don't know if it's true or it's false, but you can't really just fault the man at the head for all the decay that runs down through the system, right? I see a lot of people go, well, three million more people voted for one party and the other party won the election. And I pause and I go, wait, three million more people, but we have about 300 million people in the United States. Let's assume 150 million of those can vote. 
If you tell me just three million people more voted for one party, I have to pause and go, wait a minute. The problem isn't the guy that was voted for. The problem is all these people we have in the country and their different views. And their views may not necessarily be correct, right? So the problem isn't just at the head. The problem is you and I and our decisions, what we believe, what we stand for. It tells me in Proverbs 8 verse 15 that by me kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me princes govern and nobles all who rule on earth. So in essence, God says that regardless of what's going on, I'm still in charge. Okay? Regardless of the situation on hand, I'm still in charge. In fact, in Daniel 2.21, Daniel, after he receives um, the answer to the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, he immediately kneels down and he starts to praise God. And he says that, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are ease. It changes times and seasons. It deposes kings and it raises up others. So the situation regardless of how bad the situation can get, God is still in charge, right? Regardless of what political party seems to be in power. Because let's be honest, the United States has been around for quite a while. And in that time, Democrats have ruled, Republicans have ruled, right? The fact that we've come along to this point isn't just the fault of one party, right? It's the fault of everything that has led up to this point, right? So we've got to realize that the answers to our questions, the answers to our problems, they don't lie in political parties. They don't lie in the people that are in charge. The answer lies in God. If we trust in God, we will get victory. It says in John 19:11, when Pilate, when Jesus Christ was brought before Pilate, Jesus Christ said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. In essence, Pilate, yes, you are the governor here, but you're not the one in charge. God is still in charge. So let's move on to a different, a different sphere, um, a different place where we'd have different issues. Um, so that would be like slide five or six if the communication room wants to follow along. Um, so we're talking about global warming, for instance. Um, is it true? Is it false? You probably won't be able to read the text clearly there, but you can see the line. That red line there shows you the level of the sea. So the sea level is rising. Now, whether it's global warming or not, I don't know, but the sea level is rising, and it's somebody's fault, right? If you go to the next slide, it talks about wildfires, right? And the last two years, I've seen more or less the worst set of wildfires in California's history. And it's not just California, it's um, that part of America, parts of Canada. We have some, I think, in Florida. And it's interesting, you can't really see it, but um, I'm going to read the quotes in that screenshot there. It says, the numbers don't capture it. The fire was the wildest fire in the state's history, with nearly 500 square miles burnt. In fact, the article here, and it's on in the Atlantic, so it's not a Christian journal. It says, the holy fire has forced 20,000 people to leave their homes, 16 other places requiring 14,000 firefighters are devouring woodlands elsewhere in California. Um, the next slide makes it more interesting. There's a quote there that I would like to read too. 
It says, there's something strange about the fires. Pat Williams, a professor of biology and the environment at Columbia University told me that a wet spring normally makes for calmer fire seasons. So the spring was pretty good, right? So the fires shouldn't have been that bad is what he's saying. He says, this spring, the rainfall was adequate. In 2017, the spring rains were enormous and excessive. Both fires, therefore, therefore should have been subdued, but both seasons turned out to be anything but. So we really don't know why the fires are blazing as much as they are blazing. We just know that we have wildfires. And then let's move on a little bit more. So we can talk about um, um, the temperature. We all, uh, yes, it's winter now. Well, it's technically should be fall. But that's part of the problem. It should be fall, right? And it's rather cold. You see the red lines there? The red lines actually show us the global temperature relatively over the last 1980. So where the red lines start going up, that's since 1980. It's not going to get much better. The times are interesting. It reminds me of Revelation 7 verse 1 where it says, and I saw, and after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of earth, holding back the four winds of earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. It's, it's, um, I think the takeaway here is not that you should be scared. It's that God has said these things would happen. God has said, I am in charge. In fact, I'm the one holding back the four wings of winds of the earth so that it doesn't get much worse than this, right? So again, I want to remind us that regardless of the situations we're going through, God is still in charge. God is in control. In, in uh, Matthew 24, 6 and 7, Jesus Christ says that you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdoms. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. My grandfather used to preach sermons like this when I was younger. And I actually told myself that I won't preach these types of sermons because they scare people, right? They can make it look like things are bad. But the reality is that things are rather interesting right now. And they could get much more interesting. I'm reminded of a paradox um, in Wikipedia, on Wikipedia. You can read about it, but I'll quickly tell you the story. So we all know the story of the frog, right? It's apparently a fallacy. It's not real. But the story goes that if you drop a frog in cold water and you gradually crank up the temperature, the frog doesn't jump out. The frog stays in the water. <laughs> but if you drop a frog in boiling hot water, it jumps out immediately. It feels to me sometimes like we are that frog and planet Earth is that water that's gradually getting warmer. And as, as it gradually gets warmer, we're comfortable. The times change with it. The wildfires that I talk about in California, they killed only about eight people this year or so. So while the wildfires were crazy bad, it looked like the people that died weren't that much. So it wasn't that bad, you know? That's how we tend to think about it. Like, okay, yeah, they lost about half a billion dollars worth of assets, but you know, lives were saved, so it's not that bad. And it seems like we're in that situation where things are gradually getting worse, gradually getting worse, and we're comfortable. 
let's talk about some personal issues, not just global issues, right? So um, we've right now we are right on dead smack in the midst of the Me Too movement, right? Um, I was reading an article, a blog, and it said, do you realize that Bathsheba would have actually posted Me Too? Right? Because literally, David took her, David was in the guy of position, and killed her husband, married her, and you know? So Bathsheba could have claimed Me Too. I think the point, though, is to look at it from the other angle. Because this is David we're talking about. A good man, technically. A man after God's own heart. But he's also a man that sinned. We live in a sinful world. And the Me Too movement is a true movement that talks about the fact that we live in a sinful world and tries to remove God from the picture while talking about the fact that we live in a sinful world. Because when you remove God from the picture, why is it sin? Right? Why is it sin if you remove God from the picture? The only reason sin is sin is because sin is a transgression of whose law? God's law. Now, when you bring God back into the picture, it's easy to talk to men and say, well, women are different from you. They have vulnerabilities, emotional vulnerabilities. They are special, and you've got to treat them specially. But removing God out of the picture, none of that conversation can take place. But that's a conversation we're trying to have in the world today. And because we're trying to have that conversation, we have technically what is, has become mob justice, right? So on social media, we find somebody that was accused, and everybody goes, crucify him. Lock out. Right? That's the world we live in now. We live in that world where if someone accuses you, now, I'm not talking about whether it's true or wrong, but once you're accused, your life has changed. Right? And I think part of that is because we live in a world where people don't place God first. Because when you place God first, even as you seek for justice, you do it with mercy. Because we're all sinners in need of saving. It tells me in James 1, 14 and 15, it says, each man is tempted, and when they're tempted, they're dragged away by their own sinful, sinful desire and enticed. And when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. It strikes me that, especially in this country, and quite frankly, in the world at large, we hold on to statements like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We take those words and we use it as the excuse to be licentious. We basically say, well, I have the right by the Creator to do what I want. That's the world we live in. But it's not all bad. It's possible to make sense of all of it. And to make sense of all of it, we have to go back to the beginning. In Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning was what? The beginning was the word. And in, in, in John 1-1, it says, and that word, oh, sorry, so I quoted John 1-1 just now. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was who? In Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. God is our source. As long as we remain true in God, 
we can stand, we can overcome whatever challenges come up. Now, for the younger folks amongst us, some of the challenges you'd have would be stuff like evolution, the Big Bang Theory, aphasing. Um, it could even come in more subtle forms, like you can be an agnostic, basically says, hey, I'm not quite sure there's a God, but if there's a God, then by the very fact that he's a God, it means you can't understand him, so what's the point in believing in him? You know, quite subtle ways like that. Um, I was joking the other day in the teen class and I told them that the theory of evolution is like me taking my cell phone, breaking it into bits, putting it in a little bag, and shaking that bag for one billion years. And I'm claiming that after one billion years, it will form back into my cell phone. That's the theory of evolution. That's how ridiculous it is. That's what they teach the kids now in school. That's the world we live in. It's a challenging world because there isn't a professor that can actually go to a university now and say, well, I also want to teach them the theory of creation in the biology class. It will be laughed out, right? But, so we live in interesting times. It's challenging. It can be challenging to be a true Christian. I think sometimes that's the reason why we aren't really brave enough to say the truth out in public because it's challenging. It's difficult to be a Christian. But the same Bible tells me that the struggle that we wage is not against flesh and blood. It says that we wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of darkness, the powers of the dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, the truth is, that boss that makes your life miserable at work isn't the one making your life miserable. <laughs> There's a devil behind him that's making your life miserable. And when you decide that you're going to make sure that that manager at work gets it back, then it's not you. There's a devil that's prodding you to do that. We aren't wrestling against flesh and blood. We're in a spiritual battle, but we can be conquerors. In fact, we are conquerors. That's what we'll be talking about for the next section of the sermon. Um, if you jump right quick to slide 16, um, Victoria Serta. I use that word of 15. Um, oh, so good. <laughs> I use the phrase Victoria Serta because <clears throat> for those of us that grew in Nigeria, we know the slogan, right? For Aluta Continua. Yeah. I don't have Aluta Continua here because this isn't about the struggle continuing. This is about the victory being what? Certain, right? Sometimes we get stuck in the, the struggle is continuing. No, let's all move to the, the victory is certain. The Bible text today is from John 1, 1 John 1, 5 and 4. I could read from the beginning, but I'd like us to finish the sermon real quick because there's no point reiterating what we already know, right? This sermon is about reminding you that you're conquerors. It's not telling you something you don't already know. It says in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, that whoever, whatever, is born of God overcomes the world. The Greek word for overcome is nika. So in the Greek Bible, for instance, that word there, overcome, would be nika. It says overcome, overcomes the world, and this is the victory, Nike, that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the son of God? The Bible says that if you want to overcome these challenges I've talked about, if you want to live in times that are really interesting, 
times when the temperature is unpredictable, times when the world actually considers you as a miss, someone that doesn't really love the rest of humanity if you say, well, this is sin. Times like that, if you want to live in times like that, John reminds us that the first step is believing in who? Jesus. It's like it says in John 3.16, we recite it every time. But the point here is that when you believe in Jesus, when you live in Jesus, you are an overcomer. You, you don't, it's not that you overcome, it becomes you are an overcomer. Because who has won the battle? Jesus has won the battle. In fact, it's almost like you're living out God's victory. Right? That's what really happens. It says in, in Revelation 12:11, it says, and they triumphed over him by what? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimonies. It says they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The title of the, to this lesson, um, ser sermon is Uber Nike. The phrase Nike that's used, the company, the sporting company, Nike, right? That word is actually a Greek word. Um, there's also a Greek deity called Nike, but it's also, it goes back to the root meaning of the word, and the word means victory, right? So I want, especially for the young folks here, when you walk out today, if you see someone spotting a Nike canvas, remember that you have the victory in Jesus, okay? It's a reminder each time that you have that victory in Jesus. Jesus has won the victory for you. Now, Paul gets really excited about this, right? Paul doesn't just stop at calling you a victory, a victor. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, God didn't spare his own son, but he gave, it, gave him to us. And so who can bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is he who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or firming or nakedness or danger or the sword? It says, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I'd like to pause here and say that this sermon isn't saying that it won't get difficult. It's not saying that we won't face challenges. Paul himself admits here that he says, and he's quoting the scripture, for your sake we face death all day long. But then again, Paul turns around and says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. The phrase there is upper Nike or Nikeo. So Paul basically takes that phrase that John uses, right? that says we've overcome, and it puts upper in front of it, right? Now, the word upper is the root word from which we get lots of words in English. It's, remember the U-P in that word, up? So, upper, super, uber, right? Uber is more or less the Greek, the um, German version of super, uber, right? So Paul is saying that you are super victorious, you are overwhelming conquerors. You're not just conquerors. You are overwhelming conquerors. It's like you're playing a soccer match, and they bring you in when the game is already 5-0, right? The game is already won, and they bring you in. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
He's, he's already won the game. And he's saying, hey, come take part in my victory. Okay? So, and I have um, a screenshot here. You don't have it in the communication room. But it talks about, there's an article on the BBC that talks about how the word um, Uber comes about. And it says, um, the, they're cousins of upper. They're all, so words like Uber, super, they're all the same root word as upper, which is what we saw in the previous slide. And it says that um, some of these words are falling down in use, right? So like words like hyper, it's a relative of Uber, but it has a negative connotation, right? Let's say you are being hypersensitive, or you are being hyper. But Uber, the cab company Uber, we all know the cab company Uber, right? When they decided to look for a name, they decided to call themselves Uber Cab, which just meant super cab. Now, as the company became successful, they dropped the cab part of the name, and that's why they used the name Uber, right? Now, I want to remind you today that God says that you have Uber Nike. So each time you see a taxi, or each time you want to call for an Uber, or you have a friend saying, hey, let's call for an Uber, especially the younger folks, I want you to remember that God says that you are overwhelmingly victorious, that there's nothing that can hold you back. It strikes me that sometimes as Christians, it looks like we have the victory, and the things that hold us back are not the things that should hold us back. We hold back ourselves, more or less. There are a few songs I have here because I like to sing, but I also have a code. Um, one says, um, and we may not know this, it's by a group called Virtue. It says, you have super victorious, abundantly glorious, excellent victory in Jesus our Lord, made more than conquerors when Christ shed his blood for us, and by his grace we have overcome the world. In essence, we've overcome the world. There's nothing that can stop you. There's another song I like that says, um, See that above, a throne in the Father's love. God destined to die, poured out for all mankind. God's only Son, perfect and spotless one. He never sinned, but he suffered as if he did. And all authority, every victory is yours. And then the bridge says, Savior, the chorus, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of all our praise. You overcame Jesus. Awesome in power forever. Awesome and great is your name. You overcame. And then the bridge goes, you will overcome by the blood of the lamp and the word of your testimony. Everyone overcome. See, the victory is for each and every one of us. There isn't one of us that doesn't have the victory already. In class today, we're talking about predestination, and we said Christ has predestined all of us to be saved. 
it didn't just predestine all of us to be saved. It predestined all of us to be victorious. That's what being saved means. We've been victorious. God has given us the victory. So this afternoon, I'd just like to remind us that we should remember our creator, especially for the young ones amongst us. Remember your creator in this day of your youth because in him you have victory. Believe your creator. Don't believe what the world tells you. And live in the victory that God has freely given you. And as John ended the book of Revelation 22, 21, that's how I'm ending the sermon. He says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.